The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Children's books are a hot genre right now. With libraries closed, more parents are purchasing children's books than ever before, and more authors are trying their hand at writing a children's book. And with how short they are, how hard could it be to write a children's book? It turns out, very hard. Or at least, it's hard to write a book that parents want to buy and that children want to hear. As a parent of a two-year-old and an almost one-year-old, I have learned that there are a lot of mediocre children's books out there. So how do you write a children's book that connects with both children and parents? Well, to help us answer that question, we have a very special guest. She's an award-winning author and an editor who writes for both adults and children, and her most recent book is A Little Blue Bottle, a picture book about grief. Jennifer Grant, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get into writing children's books? Well, I, I started in my publishing um, journey. Well, depending on how far back you want to go. I um, I started my writing journey as a columnist for newspapers. And I wrote a lot about parenting and family issues and, and health. And that sort of evolved into writing memoir about raising children. And my kids are a lot older than yours now. Mine are um, 18, 20, 22, and 24. But when they were little, and I was really trying to figure out how to be a parent, as I'm sure you can relate, um, and trying to really discern what messages to listen to, what really did matter as a parent, and what things were just, you know, sort of the flavor of the week of, of parenting styles and so on. Um, I really dug into being a writer of parenting books. And I wasn't writing for children, but I was writing about what it was like to raise them. And then when they got older, I just felt maybe it was that I missed having all those children's books around. Um, I We had a huge practice of going to the library a couple times a week and bringing home stacks and stacks of picture books. And as you say, there were a lot of them that really were pretty mediocre, not only the the writing and the quality of the storytelling, but some of the illustrations and, and other production values were really, you know, substandard. And so I started getting this idea like, oh, I would love to add something of value to children's literature, particularly as a person of faith. I would love to write books that dealt with um, spirituality and sparked curiosity in children about spirituality and weren't heavy-handed or trying to just teach them something, not a Sunday school lesson, but something that could really invite them to consider whether God was with them, for instance, in this new book, um, In Our Grief. And that's what A Little Blue Bottle is about. It's about a little girl really coming to terms with loss and with the loss of a neighbor who had died, um, but really questioning, you know, is God with me right now? Does God does God know when I'm suffering? And so, um, so, so my journey into writing for children started about four years ago or five, and I did some consulting work um, with a publisher who then later said, "Hey, how about writing your own book?" And I was asked to write about the fruit of the spirit, and that was my first picture book for children which is called Maybe God is Like That Too. And again, I was sort of just hoping to present kids in a fresh way, the ideas around the fruit of the Spirit, in a way that might capture their attention and also um, be interesting to the <laughs> the poor parents who have to read these things over and over to their kids, as you know. And over and over <laughs> exactly. and over. Yeah. 
So yeah, so now I've published three picture book for picture books for children, and I have several more coming out over the next couple of years. So it has been a real delight. And um, one thing about this time is, unfortunately, I can't go and I've been over the last years, you know, speaking at schools and, um, you know, reading the books at preschools and so on. And that piece has obviously been uh, shut down for now. But um but yeah, I, I look forward again to being in a room with all the little hands, you know, asking questions and and pointing out all the dogs in the books. And it just I love the kind of great transparent interactions that uh, I get from little readers or little listeners. Yeah, what's interesting about children's books is that they are audiobooks, really. You have to think about them as a piece of performance, which is what's interesting. As an author, you can go and perform the book, kind of like how you know the ancient writers of old, like Herodotus, would go from town to town in Greece performing his histories. Right? They weren't just meant to be written down in the scroll. He would perform them, and he would give the great speeches of the generals or whatever, and it added a sense of drama to it. Children's books are that same way. They're like the last vestige of the old of the old world because uh, that's how all books were in the olden times, right? In the book of James, it's like, I don't want you to be hearers of the word only, right? <laughs> I want you to be doers of the word, not just hearers. The assumption was that the Bible would be heard, and the assumption is that children's books are going to be heard. And so while you can't do that in person, you can do it online. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the process that you go through when you're approaching a children's book. Your publisher comes to you or you have an idea of like, here, I want you to do a book on the fruit of the spirit. Or I want you to do a book on grief. How do you take that idea and turn it into a book for children? Well, um, so it, it's really different depending on the project. But so with uh, the book about the fruit of the spirit, the publisher did have that idea and brought it to me. And so what I did then was I looked at what other books um, were available uh, on the fruit of the spirit. And, um, and I couldn't, I mean, honestly, I didn't find any that I really loved. A lot of them uh, showed sort of a fruit bowl on somebody's kitchen table and would say like, joy is like a banana or, you know, whatever, you know, it was kind of predictable and a little sing song and um, not something I would have liked to read to my children and not something that I felt brought something fresh um, to this concept. And so I just thought about what would be different. How could, how could I tell this? How could I express some of these things to a kid in a way that would be surprising to them and also relatable? Um, and so I started, you know, just uh, sketching out different ideas of, of who could be the characters in such a story. And um, I kind of came up with this backstory about uh, a grandmother who was raising her grandchild in the city and how the child saw so many people and there was so much activity and so much noise and traffic and, and sirens and, and other people, but where was God? And so he asks his grandmother at the beginning of it, you know, I see all these people, I see the city, but I never have seen God. And she directs him and gently guides him toward looking for um, evidence of God's spirit. And so she says, you know, when you see joy, when you see peace, when you see kindness. And so he goes through his day looking for evidence of, of the Holy Spirit and kind of getting to know those things. And, and you know, to your point about the books being um, made to be read aloud, that's so much a big part of my process is I read it all aloud over and over because I do remember sitting there reading really poorly rhymed or just clunky prose to my children. And so it is super important to me that um, 
for whatever parent has to read this out loud at least once, maybe a hundred times, that it won't have a kind of rhyme that will stick in their ears and make them want to just, you know, run outside and shout. So, um, so a big part of my process is to read them aloud and, and to kind of play with poetry, not in a, um, maybe a predictable rhyming way, but in a way that just is pleasing, you know, some, some, uh, parts of the stories can be told in a more lyrical way. And um, yeah, so reading it again, reading it out loud a hundred times is, is really standard for me when I'm working on these. Yeah. One of the, I don't know much about parenting, so don't take this as parenting advice for any of you listening. Cause I have two whole years of experience, but one of the things I have observed is that children really crave structure. They, they love kind of knowing where the boundaries are and, and what the structure is in a well-structured book. Uh, they come back to that over and over again, and, and they find that as a source of comfort, at least according to my sample set of one voracious toddler who would have about 50 books read to her a day if, if we let her. <laughs> she never gets tired of having books read to her, but the books that she goes back to are the books that are really well-structured. Now, it doesn't have to be rhyming, but the book will lay out its structure at the beginning and the books that keep to that structure are the books that she wants to come back to. And more often than rhyming where I see the mistakes being made, because everyone can notice a rhyming mistake, but where authors often get fast and loose is with the um, meter. And my daughter hates that. <laughs> if you play fast and loose with the meter, if you set up a meter and you break it, uh, th- that's really jarring for her. And it's it's a little disorienting. And the um, authors like Dr. Seuss, right, he never breaks his meter. I don't think a single time, at least not in any of the books I've read. And I've read quite a few of them quite a few times. He he follows that as if it's a religious guideline. And he what's interesting is that he created his own meter, right? There's no other author that does his meter unless they're trying to sound like him. And so walk us through kind of, because I know you think about that as you're reading through it. It's not just how it sounds, it's how it's structured. So how do you structure a book to be uh, kind of a safe place for a child to come back to? Mm -hmm. Well, to your point about children really loving structure and predictability, I think that's completely right in our parenting, but also, yeah, in in writing for them. um, They love, you know, a refrain. They love you know, the times where I've read my maybe books, maybe God is like that too. And the second one is called maybe I can love my neighbor too. And that's a refrain throughout the book. And what's fun is when I'm reading it to a class or a preschool chapel or whomever, the kids start anticipating it and getting kind of excited on the edge of their seats. So then they can say that, you know, so then they, by the end, they're saying it aloud with me. And so, yeah, I think there's something comforting. There's something so secure when, we and it's also kind of exciting when you're um, a child and you you figure it out. It's like you cracked the code of this book. Oh, this is going to keep repeating. Um, this is important, and so that's another gift we can give to kids um, in our books. So, yeah, I think structure is really important. And and I do some editorial consulting of people who are working on picture books, and a big mistake that I see with with new you know um, authors who haven't done this a lot is that they think they can, because because to read a beautiful picture book is such an easy and such a flowy and um, wonderful experience, they think it, it just has tumbled off the tongue of the author, when indeed that person has probably rewritten it more times than you can even count. Although it could be only 300 words or 500 words, those words have been so carefully chosen 
And yeah, so I, when in my own process, usually a first draft of a picture book when I'm working on something, it can be 1,500 or 2,000 words long, which is about four times as long as it should be. And so that's sort of me just sort of getting the backstory of the characters, um, figuring out, you know, what's going to happen and when. And then I really try to dial down and take seriously, you know, the um, in its own way. I mean, picture books do it differently than, say, a novel for adults. But what is the three-act structure or what is the structure in the story? Um, what what does the character want? What are the obstacles to that? How do we resolve that? And often when I'm working with a client who's got a wonderful story, an idea for a character or a wonderful story, or maybe is really gifted in rhythm and rhyme, but they don't have that structure, then the story just sort of meanders off. And I know that the child's attention would as well. And so at that point, I encourage them to really go back to basics and say, okay, let's look at this just like as though you're writing a book for adults. Who's your character? What is the story there? Is it, you know, we know those classic stories, right? Of like, you know, a human fight against nature or against someone else, you know, these kind of classic story um, stories that are in all of literature. And so I encourage them to look at that, to look at the three act structure or four act or however many acts are true. And, and that often helps a person remember, oh yeah, this is, this is just like, a book for adults is really satisfying when it comes to a wonderful resolution after all the challenge and the high stakes. And those will be different in every kind of, you know, picture book. But it's at that point when a, a writer starts taking those story elements really seriously that I see great improvement. And I see a story that the parent and the child will be interested in returning to. Because you can have all of those conflicts in a children's book, right? Mm -hmm. There is Pooh against himself. There's poo against others. There's poo against society. There's poo against nature, right? Each one of the Winnie the Pooh stories explores yeah. one of those plots, right? Absolutely. And sometimes they're intermingled. And I've, I've only heard the Winnie the Pooh story about 50 times. Uh, it's on Spotify. You can get the old Disney um, version with the songs on Spotify. Mm -hmm. which oh, I love that. My wife yeah. discovered that much to the chagrin of all of our long drives. <laughs> it all ends with with Winnie the Pooh. But as we're talking about structure, uh, I want to give two structures that you can get started with if you're wanting to kind of try your hand at children's books. And the first is the one you're probably the most familiar with, and it's the three-act structure or the three-repetition structure. And this is kind of quintessential Western storytelling. You see it a lot in the um, Grimm's fairy tales, right? There's three little pigs, there's three bears, and children love that repetition where you're giving the same phrase, and then you're doing it again, and you're doing it a third time. My daughter loves being able to predict the final word in a sentence. So if I'm reading a sentence from a children's book and then I don't say the last word, if she's able to say it or pseudo say it, cause her, her words aren't very decipherable yet, but she has just the biggest smile if she can predict it. The other structure, though, is what's called a chiastic structure. This is an Eastern storytelling technique, and it's more common in the Bible, actually. You don't see the three-act structure much in, in the scriptures, but you do see the chiastic structure. Uh, and this is where you tell the story, and then you flip it, and then you tell the story again, but something has changed. And a quintessential example of the chiastic structure in children's literature, I'd say, is Goodnight Moon. So Goodnight Moon, it's kind of framing the room and then saying goodnight to everything in the room. It's, it's a, a perfect example of a chiastic structure. And in that way, it's structured very much like the book of Ruth <laughs> or, or the Bible as a whole, right? Because we have two testaments and uh, it starts and heaven ends in heaven. Anyway, the, 
not to get too deep into the theology here, but uh, I encourage you to pick one or the others. There's there are a lot of other structures you can use, uh, but those two are the easiest. I feel like to work into a children's book because they're so simple. And don't feel like it has to be a three-act structure. Chiastic structure goes to the core of who we are and resonates just as well as a three-act structure does. And there's a far fewer authors writing books with that with the chiastic structure. And the only people teaching on it are theologians. <laughs> it's the sort of thing you learn in theology school or hanging out with anime people because it is a very Eastern structure. So a lot of animes uh, are built with that structure. Um so, kind of changing the topics here, what, uh, what, Jennifer, what do you see that children look for in a children's book? What makes a child pick a book off the shelf at the library over another book? Well, I think, obviously, with picture books, um, it's such a marriage between the text and the illustrations. And so, you know, a young child like your daughter, would, if she were walking through the library, it would be really appealing um, illustrations, right? That, or whatever her favorite thing, for instance, if she loves, you know, cats over dogs or whatever, they'll be looking for things that they really love a lot. Um, often when I've spoken and, and read at, at preschools, almost always there'll be a little boy or two who will say to me, and not that girls don't love trains, but they will always say, have you ever written a book about trains? (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, you know, kids have their favorite thing, and so they feel drawn toward this thing, and they're always on the lookout for that. So it's also kind of fun to think about that. And I've actually thought of that in my books, although I haven't, I don't have an animal book published right now. But um, in the maybe books, I did ask the illustrator to include a lot of pictures of dogs. And that's because of my experience reading again to little kids at their preschools and so on. Um, they're always looking for pets, they're always looking for dogs, and that's fun for them. And so one of the sort of like secret cookies that my illustrator and I have in the maybe books is that there are um, many dogs. And so as I'm reading to little kids, I'll say, oh, look, there's another dog. And there's always some child that's counting the dogs and so on. So, um, so yeah, so illustrations are, are definitely something that young children look for. My daughter would love, would love those books. And if any of you have a book that features a purple owl, that is a shut up and take my money. (laughs) Purple is her favorite color and owls are her favorite animal. Well, exactly. And I bet you'll come across something like that, or she will. Um, yeah, or unicorns were really, are really big right now as well. And there's a lot of books with unicorns on them. Um, so those things from a young kid's perspective, I think are really appealing. And then in terms of what brings them back over and over, I think, again, it's just like with any literature, it's, it's well-told stories. Um, my kids really love this book by William Joyce when they were growing up called The Leaf Men. And it was about an old woman. It's such a, um, it's, it's such a book that you wouldn't think a little boy would love, but my, both of my sons, when they were about five and seven, they just couldn't get enough of this book. And it's a, a, an old woman has dropped um, a little figurine from her wedding cake, her husband, in the grass. And there are these little creatures, the leaf men, that are trying to return it to her. And so it's this really quiet, mysterious, um, it's, it's reflective of, honestly, on, on grief as well, because she's grieving the, the death of her husband. And there's so many layers to this book, most of which I'm sure they didn't understand at all. But the mastery of the storytelling and the the illustrations are really appealing as well. But, you know, I think things that 
are uh, relatable to them. And, and young children, and another thing that I say to my clients, young children are more nuanced and more complex in their experience of life than we give them credit for. And sometimes people like me, whose kids are grown now, we might have the tendency to kind of um, idealize or childhood or, or forget about the real loss. And, you know, a two-year-old can have real loss and real grief. They can lose a pet. You know, they can have a disappointment. They can have a friend be unkind to them. And that heartbreak and those, those disappointments and griefs are just as real emotionally as ours are. And so I think another thing that's great in a, in a children's book is when we can acknowledge and give them ways to express those complex emotions. Um, I had a client recently who, who had written a story about grief and the whole, um, the whole book was so kind of buoyant and the person was trying to give a healthy spiritual message about God being in control and so on. But it just felt insensitive to me because in it, this, these children were grieving and their, their mother was just like jolly and, you know, singing and, and fine instead of kind of being honest about the fact that kids, kids do experience you know, heavy emotions. And so I think books that are emotionally um, authentic and that resonate with kids are also ones that they return to. Yeah, just because they can't express their emotions doesn't mean they're not experiencing those right. complex emotions. In fact, there's a trend uh, in the like Instagram video world where you put a, a baby in a high chair and then you take a toy and some adult object and you put it in front of them, right? So you have you know some colorful toy and a cell phone. You put it in front of them, they go for the cell phone. You take something in the remote, they go for the remote. You give them some really cool looking toy and a spatula from the kitchen, they go for the spatula. And the joke is, and you can do this with your own children, they always go for the the item from the adult world over the item from the children's world. And yet, when people are designing toys, they often try to create something even more colorful than the last toy, even more dumbed down than the last toy, when what the child is craving is that piece of the adult world. Now, obviously, we don't want to give you know children knives and things that are dangerous for them, but there really is an opportunity to introduce them to those adult feelings and com- and. The other thing is that if you're able to communicate it in such a way that it can resonate with children, it'll also resonate with the parents, right? Because <laughs> parents have complex emotions too, which actually leads me to my next question. So we talked about what children look for in the books, and often what I totally agree, what causes them to pull it off the shelf is the is the graphics. But that's not what causes them to come back to the book. If, if you want the child to want to read the book more than two or three times, there's got to be something in the words that themselves, uh, unless it's like a Where's Waldo or a, one of those like Find Me books with really intricate images. But what do parents look for in the book? Because ultimately, we have to win the parents first. If the parents won't buy our books, it doesn't matter how much the kids will like it. And I see a lot of children's authors in the marketing be like, your children will want to read this book a hundred times. It's like, as a parent, that's not what I want. <laughs> I don't want them to read it a hundred times. It's like the whole reason I'm getting rid, buying, want to buy a new book is because I've already read the last one a hundred times. <laughs> so, so um, how do you position a book to resonate with parents? Yeah, I think that it's important to think about that because, again, um, you know, a young, you know, when I'm writing a picture book that could be written for three to six year old children you know, the three-year-old isn't probably reading it independently. And so, of course, it is the parent. Um, I think, well, I can just speak to my own experience. What I was looking for when I would pick out books for my kids or buy books for them 
would be ones that, yeah, took them seriously, as we were speaking about earlier, took took their emotional lives seriously, taught them something. I always liked ed- things, if there's like a little educational element um, thrown in. Um, I've got a series of board books coming out over the next couple of years, um, and they are... Uh, they handle nature topics. And so there's one about birds and I did a lot of research. And so when, you know, when a bird's call is described in the book, it's really accurate and um, the way they eat or their behavior and so, and so on. I liked things like that where I could learn something myself, but also be able to the next time, I don't know, walking out down the block with one, with one of my kids be able to say, oh, look, there's a cardinal. Remember we saw a cardinal in that book? Because I think that's so natural as parents of really young children to want to always be teaching them and kind of showing them the wonders of this world. And so um, I, that's one thing that I really liked is when there was just even just some small element that I'd be able to you know, invite my children to think about or notice. And so the next time they saw that thing, that tree, that kind of rock or whatever it is that they would say, Oh, I know something about that. And we could talk about that. So, yeah. And I think any books that, um, that also kind of, I know parents are always looking to, to kind of replace, you know, we don't want our kids on devices all the time and on screens. And so, uh, another thing that I know as, as a children's writer myself, and I know others do the same is to think about the interaction, interactive element. So sometimes it's appropriate in a story to say, you know, count with me or put your finger on the chicken or whatever to kind of give the kid a very tactile, um, way to interact with the book. And so I think parents are also looking for that for things that are analog, but that also can kind of get their kids touching things. There are those so many wonderful books like um, Pat the Bunny, you know, that has like fabric and little wool and things like that. And um, for really young children, that's kind of an exciting, um, I don't know, I would love to write one of those kinds of books <laughs> where they can, you know, interact that way. What's so important is having a hyper focus. Right when you the the Pat the Bunny is targeted at a child who's never interacted with a book before, really like it's it's all about having the child sit through and understanding what page turns work and like really teaching the like core fundamentals of book reading. It's the Candyland right teaching kind of basic pieces move on a board board game, but for books and it's really interesting because it totally works. I'm like this is the most stupid book I've ever seen, but I tried it on both of my children and they both are mesmerized by it. And my daughter's so cute because she waves at the end as <laughs> they wave to um you know they say bye bye and she says bye bye and that that's where she learned how to say goodbye. But I think often we're trying to create books that are for everyone or for a really broad group of children. And I will say as a parent buying a book, I'm buying books for really specific purposes. In fact, as you were talking, I was like, let me pull up the last few books I purchased (laughs) on uh, children's books I purchased and just see why I bought them. So the one I just bought uh, today was the ABCs of Christmas, right? We are needing more Christmas books. We're trying to teach our daughter what Christmas is. And, um, and we're wanting to control that narrative, right? We don't want to teach her uh, about Santa Claus and then have to later tell her that we were lying to her, right? So, um, But we're also wanting her to learn the ABCs, and I'm tired of Dr. Seuss ABC. I'm like, we need some other ABC books that are not this. And so that's why we bought the ABCs of Christmas. And then we also got a Winnie the Pooh Christmas book. And then going back a little bit more, we bought a bunch of potty books, right? And you're like, oh. The world doesn't need more potty books. I'm like, I'm telling you, the world needs more potty books. <laughs> That's a big thing. So getting um, 
books to deal with very specific things. In fact, I'm actually thinking about buying Blue Bottle next because we've recently had a a death in the family and my daughter is navigating that and we're all navigating that. And so it's like, oh, a book on grief for children. This just might be the kind of uh, my next purchase. But um, the key is to pick, and I think a good exercise if you're an author, is to pick a specific real-life child be like, what is a book that would bless this child where they're at right now? And that requires you to get to know that child's like, oh, this little girl is really into unicorns. This little boy is really into trains. Maybe that's what I'll instruct the illustrator to put into the book. Because the illustrator may not know that, may not be in touch with children. And if they're just doing what everyone else did, right, if all of the books coming out this year are all about cats, you're going to get lost in the noise. But if you're the one person doing a book about purple owls, <laughs> you'll, you'll break out of the noise and maybe start a new trend. I might steal that idea, the purple owl. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're more than welcome, and we will totally be your first <laughs> your first purchase. Um, so we're we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk a little, uh, quickly about mistakes. Uh, what mistakes do you see authors making when they get into writing children's books? Well, we hit on it a little bit um, earlier in the conversation, but I definitely think that um, people who are not gifted in rhythm and rhyme. Um, can really make a lot of mistakes when they try to tell their story um, in a really specific way like that, like not getting the meter right. And and just forcing, I've seen so many stories where um, one example was a, a story that was about two kids going on a picnic and it looked just like a city park, you know, and in, you know, middle America and they're going on a picnic. And it was sweet. It was a sweet story. There's a little lake and they have a picnic basket and a gingham blanket and it's all like that. And then I turned, you know, I opened the next spread and suddenly there was like an elephant in the, in the city park out of nowhere. And suddenly we're sort of like on safari just for that spread. But it was because that's what rhymed with whatever the thing was that the author was writing about. So I, I always encourage people not to use rhythm and rhyme unless they are really gifted at it and sure about that. Um, and I'm really careful. I practice what I preach. I really am careful with that. I do not uh, overly, you know, I don't over construct that way. So that's a big mistake. Um, another mistake is, is, and this is just sort of the basics, but is the length of books. So a picture book really does need to be I mean, some editors will say up to 700 words. Others will say up to 500 words. Um, but often I'll get something from a potential client and they'll say, yeah, I wrote this picture book. And it's really more like an early reader or a chapter book. And when I explain that to them, they say, no, 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 I'm picturing it like a picture book. And they, you can find exceptions to the rule. But it is really important especially for people who are approaching editors or agents for the first time to know what the rules are and to really follow them. Um, you know, everyone thinks their idea is, you know, more unique or more special or, you know, no, I really need these 3000 words in a picture book. But honestly, children, that's, you know, we were talking about expectations. If you sit down with a picture book and you've got your daughter in, in your lap and you're reading through it and you're sitting there half an hour later with the same book, she's going to be frustrated. She's used to a certain time commitment and you, you're used to a certain time commitment. If you're reading her a book before bed or something, you don't want it to be 4,000 words long. You want it to be 300 words long. So learning the kind of basics is very important and, and just, you know, just like if you're writing a certain poem, a certain, you know, uh, a certain verse, you, you figure out what are the 
uh, constraints or what are the rules with this and I, and figure out a way to follow it and let those kind of, um, strictures actually give you freedom to tell your story and to have fun with it. Um, it can help you. Then you don't have a million ways you can go in the story. You're really being specific. You're really following a structure and you're taking very seriously, both the adults reading it and the children who are going to read it. That's so good. And I just want to reiterate what you were saying about length, because I can totally confirm based off of scientific analysis, the, the and, and I can explain actually why the length is so important to keep that short. Um, when books are traditionally published, they're they're printed on what are called signatures. And a signature is a like a sheet of pay, paper that's then sliced up. And, uh, and it runs through a printing press really fast. And um, children's books often are just one signature. And so it's, you know, 32 pages of length or, or less. And any extra pages, so let's say your book is 30 pages, those two pages at the end are either thrown away or sometimes they're still printed in the book. So if you're ever reading a children's book and you're like, what is this blank page doing at the end? It's because they had a little bit left over in the signature and so they decided to put it in to give it a little bit more heft. But if to go from 32 pages to 33 pages, suddenly that's two signatures and that's 64 pages and they've now doubled the cost of making the book. And 64 pages is too many pages for a children's book. And so what ends up happening most of the time, obviously there's exceptions, is that the uh, number of pages stays the same. And so that longer book you've written now is more words per page, which ruins the ratio of words to images, which means the pages are not flipping fast enough. Now, my daughter is, you know, she's destined for literariness, I think. She just loves books, and she can totally sit for 30 minutes on on a book, and she loves to listen to stories. My son, on the other hand, if I'm not turning the page every 20 seconds, I will lose his attention. (laughs) So that page has got to be flipping really fast. Now, he'll get older, and hopefully his attention span will get a little bit longer, but what happens the longer your book is is the more of your audience of children you're reducing. Sure, there's literary kids that will sit through anything, but that's a really small fraction of the of the population. And if you can learn to write a really short book, and we have some books that have just one or two words on the page, and we'll read those a dozen times back to back. It's like, again, Momo, Momo. And she'll ask to read them again. And keeping it short really is very valuable. And I also, as a parent, Reading before bed, I 100% agree. I do not want to read a 30-minute book. I want my precious hours of no kids (laughs) to start as soon as possible. And uh, I will say, when I was a literary agent, I was getting lots of pitches for children's books. And almost all of them were too long. They were trying to work in basically everything they ever wanted to tell a child into the one book. And instead of thinking in terms of career where each book says just one thing. They're like, I'm going to squish it all in. And they're like, 1,000 words, that's the limit. My book is 997 words long. It's like they'll have three left over. It's like, no, 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 no. So I, I really agree on that, um, on the length. And I also, you're talking about forcing the rhyme. That's so important. And that's a phrase that's thrown out by authors a lot. It's like, don't force the rhyming. And it's often not explained. So I want you to dig a little bit deeper, but I'm going to try to explain it myself, and then I want you to fix my explanation. So forcing the rhyme is when you write a sentence, and then you write another kind of reflecting sentence that rhymes with it, and you kind of pick an overly big word that doesn't quite fit to rhyme with the second sentence. Not a word that my daughter can predict if we're reading, but some like disorienting sentence word. And instead of kind of editing both of the parts of the rhyme together to really fit it's all being done in that second half and it just feels really forced so is that a good definition or how would you define forcing the rhyme yeah definitely i mean i think 
Um, I read this uh, really funny short article by a, um, a children's author whose name is Josh Funk. And he says he he has a list on his website of rhyme crimes. And there's so many of them. And, and he one of them, I think he calls like the Yoda syndrome or something, where you... Um, you know, you're instead of saying maybe your whole story is told in a very specific voice and and you're saying, you know, roses are red and violets are blue, but then you switch it like Yoda and you're saying like, um, but, you know, sweet is the sugar you are as well or, you know, whatever. I mean, just these kind of like um, these things that we're doing that we're, we're forcing it. I mean, I guess that's the main thing is that any any way where you're bringing in an image or you're bringing in a word or you're you're squeezing in extra syllables um it probably is a is a good indicator that maybe this doesn't the story doesn't need to be told in rhyme and it really is an art form and that's you know again this is sort of an underlying uh, message that I always want to give to my own clients and and to keep in mind myself when I'm writing is that you know, we should take our, our work for children just as seriously as we take any other work. And we should give it the time. We should let it sit. We should hire editors. We should, you know, workshop things. And just because it's 200 words or 400 words, those actually, it should be taken even more seriously because each word matters so much. You know, if you've ever tried to write a haiku, <laughs> you know, and you want that moment of insight, you want those syllables to be right. And that's not something that most of us toss off. In fact, you know, it's probably harder to write a good haiku than it is a thousand word essay, you know, because you're picking each word so carefully. And I feel that way um, when I'm working on a book for children where it just has to be right. And and humbly, you know, I can go to people in my writer's guild or I can go to um, my editor and say, I'm really struggling with this part or help me out. And it's great to have people who will give you feedback and who can so- sort of have some distance from that project and say, yeah, actually, that rhyme really is annoying. And you will <laughs> so annoy the poor parents who are reading this book if you leave that in. So, um, yeah, I just I think there's many ways to get rhymes wrong. And so sometimes it's safer just to tell your story and not feel like you have to force it into a rhyme. Amen. I, my daughter loves rhyme books. She also loves books that don't rhyme. They don't have to rhyme. You just have to have some kind of other structure. And, and rhyming is a structure, but it's not the structure. And that you're exactly right that this is worth getting right because children's books, when done well, can last for generations, right? One of the big things parents look forward to buy in children's books for their kids are the children's books. Their parents read them, right? There is a book that I read to my daughter that my grandmother read to my father and he read to me, right? It's three generations of this book. And it's it's a you know, sweet little story about a boy and his horse and the illustrations are great. And it's a really old children's book. And, you know, my daughter likes that book and there's a chance she'll read it to, to her kids. That's an incredible impact that you can have with your writing, but only if you're willing to put in the work, like Jennifer's saying, to really make it a masterpiece, right? Because if it's not a masterpiece, then it won't uh, survive the test of time. Uh, Jennifer, where can people find out more about you? Um, I'm online at jennifergrant.com. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Jennifer C. Grant. And I have an Instagram, uh, Jennifer Grant Writer. And yeah, those are those are the main places that I sort of connect with people online. All right. We'll also have a link to her book, A Little Blue Bottle, if you're looking for a children's book on grief. 
Our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Market Guide. If you're looking for help with writing a children's book, or you're looking for a publisher to publish your children's book, or if you're looking for editing, whatever you need, you can find help in the Christian Writers Market Guide. It's a list of editors, agents, cover designers, illustrators, if you need an illustrator, and so much more. And you can find the 2021 Children's Writer, uh, Christian Writers Market Guide at christianwritersmarketguide.com. Jennifer Grant, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. You bet. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.